and he pulls me aside, like forcefully grabs my shoulder, like almost inco- uncomfortably so, like a real gruff shoulder grab. And he leans in to whisper in my ear. He said, you know, I, I like the vision for for your business, but it's too ambitious and nobody likes a know-it-all. And he said it in a whisper at about 100 decibels because his mic picked it up. And like the 50 people behind me just started laughing because I just basically got schooled by, by Peter Drucker on the value of humility when, you know, when creating a business plan. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a dream to have a fulfilling job and a great life turned into one of the most successful hiring firms in the world. I don't know about you, but I hate hiring. I hate everything about it. I hate that I don't know what I'm doing or if I'm doing it right or if the person I'm about to bring on the team will be awesome or a complete disaster. Or at least that's how I used to feel about hiring. Until a few years back, I had the privilege of hearing Jeff Smart of GH Smart speak I remember looking at his name on the agenda and thinking, oh no, hiring, yuck. But it's in these moments when we think we know our perspective on a topic that we are usually totally surprised. I was captivated by Jeff's story and his methodologies. And after I saw him speak, I read his book and then implemented his process. I read a ton of business books and I would have to say that who, Jeff's book on hiring, is in my all-time top five. Because as Jeff shares with us, who you hire will make or break a company. And it's totally actionable. I was able to implement what Jeff teaches immediately and see the results. Jeff knew from an early age that he wanted to help people and quickly saw that it wasn't what you did, but who you did it with. And this is his story. Jeff, let's talk about how your story starts. I mean, let's go back to the beginning. Did you, did you dream of all this? Did you dream of an existence to help leaders amplify their positive impact on the world? And when you were a kid, like what was life like for eight-year-old Jeff? What was your credo back then? <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, I always thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. There's just something exciting about the idea of you know inventing something or or creating a a a business from nothing um, in the, let's see here, uh, winding the clock back to the, the eight-year-old me wanted to be an, a, a CIA agent <laughs> or, or, or a newscaster. I did like the idea of analytics and doing impactful things. I was a CIA draw. And then um, the idea of using um, verbal or written communication to tell stories and to help people it was a, the draw of, of becoming a newscaster. So that was the, uh, the early roots around age eight. The idea for GH Smart came to me as a college freshman. I was studying economics. Uh, My mom actually had uh, scored me an internship working at a venture capital firm. And what I was struck by was how the name of the game for succeeding in in that field was, uh, I kept hearing all about 
not what you invest in, but who you invest in. And, and yet all these investors were spending all their time, you know, looking at products and looking, you know, forecasting financials and doing all this, all this wet stuff when it seems like the, the key to success uh, lay more in the who. So the, the kernel of the idea for the firm was born in 91. And then I actually ended up founding our firm June 16th, 1995. Nice. And where would you grow up? Where did you, you spend your formative years? Yep. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. So I'm, I'm from Chicago and um, those were my formative years. And I've lived in Los Angeles. And now for the last dozen years or so, um, I've lived in Colorado. Yeah. And, and you mentioned your mother. What, what did your parents do for a living? What was, what, what was the upbringing, the influence like there? Yeah. My mom was a speech therapist. So she, she got a master's degree in in speech therapy. So we all, my sister Kate and I had to uh, be very articulate growing up. Uh, Mark, to, you know, because my mom would help us with our enunciation. Uh, my father was a, had a PhD in industrial psychology, uh, which he would tell you, he, he kind of like took a class in, in college, loved it and got into that field, which is you know basically like the, the formal process of of studying human behavior as it relates to work. So he was obviously a big mentor in the early days, hearing stories of, of helping advise companies on their people problems. So those are, uh, those were my two parental influences. And then I have a younger sister, Kate, um, who is um, more socially skilled than I and was always more popular and uh, is, a, is a great person. She lives in the Chicagoland area today. Yeah, it's always the younger sister, Kate, who's more socially aware, more popular, just the way it goes. Yes. <laughs> well, it was embarrassingly so. For me, I was um, slightly more introverted and focused on my studies. And my sister seemed like she always had you know, 10 to 20 friends over at the house at any given time. So when, when you, you know, heard your dad come home from work and talk about his day and talk about the importance of, of, of leadership and, and dynamics in the workplace, I mean, was that something that was interesting to you at the time or did, were you kind of not interested and were you off do, like thinking of other things? Like what were you into in like high you know, school? Yeah. The topic of leadership always was very, very interesting to me. So um, I was a big bookworm. So you know, Tom Peters, Peter Drucker, Milton Friedman, the economist who is all about uh, freedom. Um, these were, you know, early uh, books I read that really, really resonated. So um, yeah, through, through leadership, I guess, in sports and leadership and, you know, like running this high school newspaper and, you know, some um, little things like that early on, and then reading these, you know, books about how to effectively lead your team. Uh, what, you know, it really was a passion area. I, I always felt like the difference between elevating the quality of human life or having human life's, uh, life be um, harmed is you know comes down to leadership whether it's you know governments military businesses etc so yeah I've always been a, a big fan of the topic of leadership and always curious and interested in in what other people think um, uh, are the keys to success so that was a real interest early on and so it was fun this is let's see the 90s private equity was kind of becoming a big deal as a career strategy consulting you know, and investment banking were still very popular. Um, so, but I, coming out of college, didn't uh, go right to work. Instead, I went and got a master's and a PhD in psychology focused on business. So, you know, in business, they call it organizational behavior. Um, in psychology, they call it, you know, organizational psychology. But I got to go study with Peter Drucker out in Claremont in California. He was about 
80 years old at the time and, and had you know long been considered the father of management. So it was, um, was kind of like sitting at the feet of Socrates and, and learning from the master. And uh, it was good fun and surfing on the weekends. So it was, it was really <laughs> the best of both worlds. <laughs> Drucker and surfing. It sounds like a documentary that I want to yes. watch. Like, I, like, I like that. That's, it was that's really great. Fun. It was seriously good times. Yeah. And for our listeners who don't know, can you give a uh, 30 second primer on who Peter Drucker is and, and sure. why he's relevant? Yeah, you bet. So the study of leadership and management really became formalized um, about, I don't know, 70 years ago or so. Uh, Peter Drucker was a Austrian journalist, and he was just fascinated with with the success or failure of organizations. So um, he could have made, you know, millions or billions, but instead decided to stay academic. So he taught at Claremont for decades and decades just outside of Los Angeles. And um, I remember, you know, for example, here's how big a deal he was when he was just sort of in his free time um, advising CEOs like uh, A.G. Laffley, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, would fly in and, you know, take a limo out to Peter's house and they would uh, just sort of like float in in Peter Drucker's pool. He had a little pool in his backyard. And um, and I asked, well, you know, how, how, how much do you charge for that? Just out of curiosity. I remember Peter Drucker told me, he said, $50,000. I said, $50,000 to float with you in your pool? And he said, yeah, you got to charge something. Otherwise, people don't take the advice seriously. Um, and so that was kind of, an, you know, it was fascinating studying with him. He, he, I think he's written more Harvard Business Review articles uh, and more top-selling books on on management than anybody. That's why if you like Wikipedia, Peter Drucker, they refer to him as the the father of the field of management. Yeah, and he really, I mean, he, at that time and even before, was like the movie star of business. Still is. I mean, I'm looking around and I just I'm like surrounded by Peter Drucker books and yes and, and, and things like that. I mean, if you know, those are the first things. You know, when you get mentored, someone says, you know what, go read this book, the five most important yes. questions. You know, you need to you, you need to you need to learn some Peter Drucker. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's important to give context. And so you're there, you're in Claremont, you're you're doing your thing. You went and you found a mentor in Peter. Yep. And now, do you know what you're going to do after? Do you have a sense, or are you just collecting the knowledge are you just you know because that's the way i approached uh my university study i just i kind of went i, I was going to use that to figure out where, what i wanted to do but i didn't yep. really know what i wanted to do so in contrast to, to going to, to college um i was at northwestern studied economics i didn't know what i wanted to do at that point i, I had had that internship with a venture capital firm but by the time i graduated i made a very conscious choice to study with peter drucker uh to go do a phd and, and to really like double click on this area of hiring leaders, either from the perspective of a venture capitalist, how do you bet on the right people, or the, the perspective of you know, a CEO or a, a board, you know, how do you pick the right leader? So I was actually very focused and, on wanting to get you know, deep and experienced and, and expert on that, that specific leadership question. So <laughs> grad school is four years. The PhD dissertation that I did was specifically on uh, studying how venture capitalists evaluate and then choose to who to invest in. Um, and it was fun. There's a, a famous venture capitalist, private equity investor named Henry Kravis, you know, from KKR. Yep. Yep. He went to he went to the the school, he went to Claremont or right at grad school. So I called him up to be in my study and his assistant told me, no, thank you. And then I called her a second time. She said, no, I called her a third time. I'm begging her. I'm like, hey, I'm a PhD student. I'm doing a topic that I think is going to be of interest to 
to uh, Mr. Kravis, you know, are you sure he, you know, he, he won't be in my study? I'd, I'd really love to, to get his participation. So she basically just told me to stop calling. But I didn't, Mark, because we, we entrepreneurs are, are persistent. So I called her a fourth time and I told her that I would stop calling and bugging her um, if she would please just show him this like one paragraph description of the study that I was working on. And if he said no, I wouldn't call back again. But if he said yes, then, you know, we would do it. So she said, all right, hold, please. And she walked into his office and came back about 30 seconds later. And she said, Mr. Kravis has agreed to be in your class project. Um, I said, oh, great. So once I got, um, you know, billionaire, private equity tycoon, uh, Henry Kravis in my study, um, I rapidly got um, over 50 private equity firms to jump in and be in it. And what I did basically was study how they evaluate management teams and I looked at half a century of research on what, you know, what should be the best practices. And then I tested them. And I found that investors who followed half a century of the best practices of, of hiring and, and picking teams ended up being successful and making more money than those who didn't. And so then that became the kernel for GH Smart. And I kind of took that show on the road, told the story. And so our early clients were were these investor types. And then uh, later we branched out and served, you know, CEOs more broadly. Yeah. And you've, you've kind of alluded to, uh, you know, when you had that first job of studying economics uh, or not, so you were studying economics. We had the first job uh, that your mom got you at the, yes. uh, at the it was, a, I think it was a venture PE firm. Correct. And then you had the kernel. You're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, everyone's saying like, we got to invest in people. Uh, and now you have this, you know, where did that interest really blossom between there and deciding to dedicate a good chunk of your life, because as you just outlined, when you go to get a doctorate and other things, that, that's a commitment. That's not, yeah. that's a, like, that's a bigger commitment than a tattoo in my mind. So like, you know, like where, what kind of happened <laughs> in between there to say, you know what, like, I really want to, I, I think there's something here. Yeah. Okay. So if we're being candid and revealing our vulnerable parts of our past, Mark, I'll share with you that uh, I tried and failed to get an internship at McKinsey during college. I was fascinated by that brand story, you know, these folks who McKinsey, a great strategy consulting firm, they advise you know, CEOs and government leaders on their you know, most important decisions around you know, products and operations and strategy, et cetera. Um, so they don't, I mean, technically they don't really do uh, undergrad internships anyway. So I, I, I didn't take it too personally, but I remember thinking, I'd love to work there. Um, it seems like strategy consulting though, um, carries a great sacrifice on your lifestyle. Also, investment banking, you know, investment banks, and the idea is, that, you know, go there. It's a great way to, um, you know, have a successful career. But, you know, boy, it's kind of rough on, on your ability to have a life and have time outside of work. So I'll tell you, the, so the two reasons I founded GH Smart, you know, one was that earlier reason I was telling you this fascination with the leadership and the idea of bringing a more methodical approach to leadership to help investors and people who run companies be successful. Um, but the second reason I founded GH Smart was, was basically just this idea of surely there's a type of company that should exist where people who want to work hard and have an impact can also have a life. And so it's kind of the cultural story of how do you build a culture, how do you build a firm that has a, a um, better culture than what I was seeing in strategy consulting and investment banking and what would it take to, to pull that off. So that was I say equal in importance to the, the client-focused reasons for starting GH Smart. And so I was just so passionate about it. I, I saw you know, an unmet need in the market, and then I saw an unmet need in the talent market too, which is you know, how do you go do something meaningful and fulfilling and, and not sacrifice your life in the process? So the, the combo of the two 
was was so I don't know inspiring to me that I just felt weirdly confident and and focused from an early age that I, I wanted to go build that business. So at age 23, after opening the back of a uh, ink magazine, you know, where they have all those like classified ads in the back, remember that ink magazine? One of them said like, incorporate your business. I think it costs like 300 bucks or something. So I like filled this thing out as a, a second year uh, PhD student. So still in grad school, filled out this thing. And on March 16th, 1995, I remember I got the articles of incorporation back for GH Smart. And the original vision um, and purpose for founding the firm um, really has played out to a great extent. You asked me a few months ago, if, you know, if I would have dreamed, you know, GH Smart uh, would have turned out the way it did. And the answer is, um, yes, not to be like arrogant about it, but um, that was a, that's kind of the reason I started it to begin with, um, was both on the client side to have an impact and also to create this employment brand for a place where wildly talented people could go work and still have a life outside of work. And that's really interesting to me because going back into that time period, you know, early to mid 90s, I mean, this concept of having a job that you effectively love, that gives you fulfillment, that gives you meaning, uh, you know, is financially rewarding and allows you to have a life was not really that common of an idea. Yeah. Like name one. Yeah. That it wasn't as commonplace as it is today. And there, you know, there weren't clear examples around. No, not at all. I mean, I remember sitting, you know, having, you know, kind of fights with my own parents, like at the holiday table as I was getting ready to leave college. And they're like, look, you just go get a job. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter where you have to move. It doesn't matter if you hate it. <laughs> you know, yes. you just go and get this job. And, you know, even when I'm out talking a little bit, this is a big part of my origin story that really motivated me was this idea that like, I was really in search of finding a job that I love. And my dad, even at one point when I was really young, said to me, I asked him if he liked his job and we kind of go back and forth. And he finally reveals his philosophy and that, you know, they wouldn't call it work if it was supposed to be a whole lot of fun. And so, uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really am resonating with this idea that like, and I, and I really want to just nail this idea home to people listening that, yeah, today everyone is very talking about fulfillment and employers are receptive to that. And, yeah. and, and it's just, it's a whole different like kind of market today, but back then, not so much. Yeah, that's true. I, I appreciate you saying that. It did, it did seem like, you're, you had to make a trade-off, right? Either you go join like a top-tier brand and you know work work your butt off, and and maybe not worry about not even think about having life balance or having you know either having a life outside of work or having the work itself be that fulfilling. Um, or you join the Peace Corps, you know, and, and or become a teacher or something where you have this like wonderful mission. Um, but you know there are other other sacrifices you have to make financially, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that that um, really was a gaping hole, I thought, in the employment market back then. It's still hard today, even though you know, so many firms um, you know, try to give people a great, fulfilling work experience and the chance to have a life outside of work. Um, that's, that's an area that we really focus on. And I feel uh, probably most proud of, even more proud than the client impact we have, is uh, the degree to which um, people really seem to love to work here and, and how you know, it's like GH Smart was sort of born in a laboratory. I mean, I did this like four year long dissertation study on the market. Um, so that's where the, the client facing part came from. And then just, you know, being mentored by Peter Drucker and others and just trying to really think of what makes an organization truly excellent. Peter Drucker, for your listeners, is the one credited with saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, you know, focusing on what kind of cultural DNA did we want to Bake into GH Smart that you know is even Peter Drucker approved. I, I wrote a 
paper mark on the GH Smart business plan uh, and gave it to Peter Drucker. And I was so excited to try, you know, hear his feedback and and be all inspired by um, his his loving the vision. Um, he actually marked me down on the paper um, because he said he thought it was a little bit unrealistic and ambitious. Um, <laughs> and so, and then, oh, this is actually really embarrassing. He was, you know, older by the time I got to 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 work with him and and learn from him. Um, and so he wore a, a a lavalier microphone when he was giving talks at during his classes and he had his, his lavalier mic switched hot. It was on, it was before class and we were supposed to all come up and like grab our, our papers. And so I'm like going up to get my GH smart business plan paper. And he pulls me aside, like forcefully grabs my shoulder, like almost uncomfortably. So like a real gruff, you know, shoulder grab. And, and he leans in to whisper in my ear. He said, you know, I, I like the vision for, for your business, but it's too ambitious and nobody likes a know-it-all. And he said it in a whisper at about 100 decibels because his mic picked it up. And like, you know, the 50 people behind me just started laughing because I just basically, you know, got schooled by, by Peter Drucker on on the, the value of humility when, you know, when creating a business plan. So is that that was formative and helps, you know, sort of fuel the fire to, to make the thing successful. Yeah. Like, wait a second. So that's funny today. Yeah. I can only imagine how you must have felt in that moment yes. when your idol and, and effectively God in the entrepreneur business yes. world tells you your business plan isn't yeah. that good. It's not that good. <laughs> and all and my 50 closest friends were in the background to hear it. it was, oh, yeah. It was even the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's in private, you go back and you say, yeah, he, he had some notes for me. But you can't even do that. You can't even like kind of tell right. your friends, you know, you can't smooth it over. And everybody, you know, sought the approval you know, of, of Peter Drucker. And so yeah, it was it was it was funny. It was a it was a pretty cringe moment. And then Mark, he died like three or four years after I, I finished my program. So that was um, you know, it was like 20 years ago. So he doesn't know that we kind of nailed it. Like I um I in your intro, you're very generous and you point out some things I'm like really proud of, but like, you know, we have 120 colleagues today. We have a 92% retention rate. So people come here, they stay um, in other consulting firms. They have more like a 60, 70% retention rate. We, I don't know, we have like a couple hundred clients that are super happy. Harvard business school wrote a couple and they teach two cases about innovation um, using GH smart as a, as an example, it's been really fun being able to go sit there and have, people in business school debate, you know, what you did well and what you could have done better and that kind of thing. Um, the books that you mentioned that we've, each one of them took about three years plus to research and publish. And we, we've got like the Who book you mentioned, um, Stills number one uh, globally in sales and reviews on the topic of hiring. So that feels really good. Um, Leadocracy, CEO Next Door, Power Score. These are, all these books have done really great in their categories. Um, and then onto the culture thing. This is the thing that I really wish Peter Drucker could know today that, you know, that, that ended up being successful. Glassdoor, you know, rates your company uh, anonymously by your own employees. And um, so at the moment, knock on wood, fingers crossed, you know, we have a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Glassdoor as far as like overall employee satisfaction, which is, feels really good. And then um, there's this like industry rating organization called Vault that rates, you know, all the big consulting firms uh, and some small ones. And um, just for 2020, we got rated number one best company to work for in our industry, pushing McKinsey to number two and Bain to number three for overall employee satisfaction, which is mind-blowingly cool. 
And as an entrepreneur who's, you know, we've only been around for 25 years and these other firms have been around for you know, nearly 100 years, um, that, that feels very satisfying. So on the promise of, yes, like create some value for clients through helping them hire and develop talented teams, but just as equally important, you know, building this culture where people really want to come here and work and they find the work fulfilling, they find the culture supportive, that that part's uh, extra satisfying. And it's hard and it's weird and it's, you know, uh, vague. How do you build a culture? How do you, you know, maintain and nourish it and that kind of thing? Um, and we're constantly learning and we, we don't think we've solved, you know, for every problem by any means. But it, it, is, it is super exciting to, you know, see people who have the choice to work anywhere choose to join this brand. Yeah. And um, I have to think that when you saw that list, you just couldn't help but think to yourself, Take that, McKinsey. Yeah. Well, no, no, of course not. McKinsey's great for Bain, great for and what they're what they do for clients is amazing. And the culture they have is different. And if you're up for that, it's a great place to go. If you want to work on who stuff rather than what stuff, and you want to be able to, you know, go to your kids' piano recital on a Thursday at lunchtime, GH Smart is 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 the place you, you should be. So yeah, I have great respect for for other uh, firms and other niches around this world of, you know, management consulting, um, for sure. But it is fun just to be this, you know, super small fry kind of newer, newer firm that has unseated the, um, the, the classic Titans in this field for uh, best company to work for. Yeah, and, the, and overall but, satisfaction too. It's like, like there are a bunch of categories they give you these ratings for. And that, that, that one was the one, you know, we really wanted to, to win and we we're surprised and happy that uh, for 2020, we got that one. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. Yeah, and it's interesting to think how far you, you've come. I mean, when you left, you know, your studies with Peter and you said you were doing a little bit of this work with investment firms and things like that. Did you yes. have clients day one? Was this business a yeah. success day one? Or did you ever think like, uh-oh, I kind of put a lot of eggs in the wrong basket? <laughs> you know what? It was funny. My plan B was always to to go just join a consulting firm. Um, I had a runway, which is, you know, grad school and PhD programs notoriously um, take a long time. I think my program averaged uh, 10 years from start to finish, folks being done with it. So I, I, I figured, all right, well, I'll try this GH Smart thing. Um, and if it doesn't work out, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll you know, try to join a regular firm. Um, so I, it's weird. It, it never felt stressful. The early days we did have, I did have clients because I, I instantly took my PhD dissertation, which was a, which was the largest study ever done that looked at the relationship between how venture investors bet on management teams and the returns they made on deals. And I was getting like tons of keynote opportunities as flying all over the country, 
telling investors um, what they need to do to improve their bets on people. And so instantly, these these same folks that I was studying just weeks or months prior, you know, were um, were paying me to do training and consult with their investment teams on how to improve the way that they invest in people. And then once we start working with private equity, they're co-invested with other, you know, big companies. And so our, our brand started to grow beyond the entrepreneurial into more established um, companies. So yeah, from, I'd say the early phase was, you know, still a PhD student telling the world a bit about uh, our story of how you can improve your success by uh, improving the rigor of your, you know, hiring and, and evaluation process of people and how to, you know, build talented teams. And then we had contractors. So I, I had no money. I had no clients. And I really didn't know anything when I started the company. <laughs> but, but, but it was like this, you know, vision of, hey, let's do something cool for and people who run our own companies to build valuable ones through people. And then let's build this, this cool culture. And so after the kind of very initial stage where money revenue was coming in, um, from from companies that wanted to get better at this, um, I started hiring contractors, which you don't have to pay full time salaries to, and so that allowed us to grow a bit in scale without taking on risk. So I made an important decision, I guess, because I I wasn't confident in myself or in the concept to raise venture money. Like so, ironically, even though I was serving these investors, um, I didn't raise any venture money to begin with because, um, frankly, I just wasn't that sure that that this culture or this this firm. Um, was going to be successful. But then through contractors, growing it, growing it, growing it was working. And then at some point, I made the decision um, to switch over to just full-time people. So like today, that 120 of us are all full-time, full-time um, with no contractors. And that happened um, about 10 years after I founded the company. So it's like a slow growth story, testing the market, testing the culture. And then... Um, then growth actually really started picking up once I stopped managing the business day to day. And one of my most talented youngest partners, Randy Street, in 2010, following the the last recession we went through, I appointed him with the great support of my colleagues to be the managing partner. So here I really gave him the keys to run it day to day in 2010. And he's done a fabulous job of building out um, everything that we have today. And uh, under his tenure, we've had 90% client satisfaction rates exceeded every year, uh, 90% retention rates of our colleagues exceeded every year, and over 20% growth in pre-tax profit every year for 10 years. So Randy's really the like key to success of our growth and scaling um, over the last decade. But um, I like to think that the the original blueprint of, you know, on the strategy side and on the culture side, um, we're still, we're still um, playing that playbook today. Yeah. And did you ever like come up against in those early days? Did anyone say to you like, Jeff, like, it's all great that you want to like advise on leadership and building great businesses, but like, Hey man, like you've not ever done that. Right. Yeah. What do you know? You haven't even had a job. <laughs> yes. Yes. People did say that. I, I'll tell you though, the, the veil of the PhD student thing kind of worked. They viewed me as this like, you know, white lab coat, scientist who's here to both uh, study them as well as to share some best practices. And I think I was pretty, despite Peter Drucker's assertion that that uh, nobody likes to know it all, I was very humble in my posture in the early days. Uh, you know, I'm here, oh, you know, you want to improve your hiring success rate from 30% 
to 60% plus. Great. Well, let's see here. So, you know, I'll need to study how you're doing it and talk to a bunch of your people and, you know, share, we'll share some best practices and we'll help implement these methods that are proven to help you improve how you hire and develop your talent. Um, oh, here's something that's born out of humility. Do you remember how Domino's had a 30 minute guarantee or your pizza's free? Yeah, of course. So that was huge, right? They took the number one thing in their, in their you know, market, the brand story of like, oh, pizza, if it's late, you know, that stinks. But if it's early, that's great. And they said, hey, we're going to guarantee you get your pizza in 30 minutes. It's going to be hot. It's going to be there in 30 minutes or you don't pay. Now, later, they, they massaged that commitment because people were, the drivers were getting in accidents left and right, trying to rush to deliver pizzas. But I took that lesson and I read it and I, I can't remember what, you know, management book way back when, but they, um, the principle was, guarantee the thing that's hardest but most important to your customer. So just like Domino's guaranteed 30-minute pizzas, I guaranteed um, accurate hiring. And no, none of the other competitors would kind of go so far as to say, hey, look, if we do our work and you're still having hiring mistakes, we'll give you your feedback. So even to this day, to this day, we're pitch, you know, pitching huge projects these days. I, I was at a large uh, railroad a couple of weeks ago. You know, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars of fees for them to improve their hiring and development of senior people and do some culture change work. And I looked, you know, these five board members in the eyes. I said, if we are not successful, you don't pay. And it, I, it's funny, it's, that was born from the early days of, of insecurity and just not really not knowing anything when I started our business, but wanting to deliver good value to clients and wanting to have it be a great work experience for our colleagues. This, this like money back guarantee concept was a key early answer to the question. Oh, you've never really led anything. And by the way, how, why are you so young? I remember I walked into a partner at Bain Capital, one of the most successful private equity firms. And we had been doing a bunch of work for them and I met one of their senior most partners and he, he looked at me and he said, he, he actually started talking to my colleague, uh, one, someone who worked in my company and was calling him Jeff. And I said, no, I'm Jeff. And he said, geez, you're a lot younger than I thought you'd be. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you are too, Ed. <laughs> like so having humility and humor, confidence, but also saying, hey, yeah, no, that's right. I haven't been a Fortune 500 CEO. And, and literally, I, I, I don't, I've never had a full-time regular job. And I did internships in, in college and grad school, but I started the company when I was 23. So yeah, making fun of myself as just some, you know, eggheady PhD, but who has a method that does seem to work. And by the way, here are the happy other clients. You're in good company. And if, if you don't feel like you get full value for the dollars you spend, we'll refund your feedback. That was, that was sort of my way of countering the, you know, you seem young and inexperienced, understandable concern that early clients and colleagues had. And so in the early days, where'd the, where'd the name come from? I mean, I can guess it, it, it seems like it might, it might not be that not obvious, but uh, I'd like to ask. Yeah. So GH Smart and Company Inc. is the official name of GH Smart. I had, you know, just a, a huge industry crush on McKinsey and Company for being a, a, you know, a very respected, impactful firm that had tons of talented people in it. So G McKinsey and Company, GH Smart and Company. So that's where the end company came from. Uh, the GH Smart, so my first name is spelled with a G. So Jeff, uh, my middle name is Hudson and Smart is my last name. And <laughs> the brand for GH Smart, the way we write it is kind of weird. And I'm, I'm proud of this. So GH is lowercase and then all caps is S-M-A-R-T. And I, I tell people, whether it's colleagues or, or clients, that 
um, as the founder and chairman, you know, I'm the GH, but I'm, I'm lowercase, I'm a servant leader, I'm in service of colleagues and clients. Uh, but then it, it's my, cl- my colleagues who put the SMART and GH SMART, and that's why uh, the SMART part's all caps. So anyway, super cheesy and hokey, but, um, but true, and that's, that's where our brand story comes from on the little G, little H, and all caps SMART. Yeah, and I love it. And, uh, you know, a shout out to your parents, because as someone who was bestowed with the last name of Gutman, yes. and going through, you know, the, Jeff Hudson Smart might be like yes. the coolest name ever, right? Uh, like, it's like, you. like movie star. And then all of a sudden, like, hey, I have a, uh, a consultancy that, it, you know, deals with thinking and being smart. Wait a second. That's yeah. also my name. Like, it's just great. And so I, I want to give a shout out to your parents Agreed. for, shout for out that to the great, parents. great brand name. Yeah. That was, it was lovely. It's hard spelling Jeff with a G on the phone when, you know, in my early years, whenever I was ordering something from a catalog or, or whatever. But um, I, so I hate it then, but uh, I do like it now. And I appreciate, I appreciate that. Yeah. My, my folks had a, uh, a marketable last name. Yeah. And I mean, and you're probably going to deny this because you're humble, but we all know that Jeff's with a G are also smarter than Jeff's with a J. So well, that, that helps too. I'm not about to alienate any of your your uh, listeners. All the Jeffs out there, all the yeah. Jeff listeners, <laughs> all the J Jeff listeners. Exactly. We don't want to we don't want to uh, upset that segment. But yeah, you know, it's uh, I okay. So servant leadership is a theme, is something that approach I have great respect for. Um, that almost prevented me from naming the firm after myself. But there was something about just like. You know, you're like signing your name and being like, I am putting my full self into this firm that sort of counteracted that hesitation I had to call it GH Smart. So, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was kind of like 70, 30. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to name it Smart, I guess, because I, I appreciate my parents giving me <laughs> a good name for naming a business. But the, the hesitation was on, I, I never did want it to be like the Jeff show and have it just be a spotlight on me because I had learned from an early age by watching other you know, successful entrepreneurs that um, the more you can hire great folks and then let them have the spotlight, the better if you want to scale a, a top tier business. Yeah. And because scaling a services business isn't that easy. It's not like you can just mm-hmm. uh, start to, you know, dial up certain efficiencies and add, you know, more bandwidth in terms of like technology bandwidth or uh, yes. add more factory space. I mean, it, it's people and it's hard. It's not easy. Yes. So true. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it really is. It really is about adding and taking care of one colleague at a time. That's how you grow a professional services business. Yeah, I, I do uh, enviously look at some of my technology products uh, peers who can, you know, as you say, you know, put a curve in the growth rate by replicating digital technologies like super scalable fast. But uh, yeah, in the professional services business. It really is about adding great people, adding great clients, adding great people, adding great clients. And it's more of a linear growth path. It's a, it's a marathon. It really feels like you have to sustain a high level of focus and discipline and reliability for you know, years and years and years. It's not like a you know, overnight kind of thing. No, not at all. And, you know, thinking just about, you know, my own experience and kind of drawing on that and knowing over the years, it, it ebbs and it flows and it takes different things to get you excited and, and keep you coming back. And mm-hmm. so for you right now, like what what's exciting you and in, in, in keeping you excited in the business? Yeah, um, let's see here. So I have, I love my job and I, I've done something that I I don't see a lot of entrepreneurs do. And I, I spend, you know, through the books and speakings, I spend a bunch of time with YPO type folks and 
entrepreneur organization type folks like you, great, you know, entrepreneurs around the world, and just kind of comparing notes on successes and failures and, and that kind of thing. I sh- uh, shrank and narrowed my role uh, significantly. So I get to do just the things that I'm pretty good at that I like to do a lot. So, so what keeps it fresh for me is if I was like, you know, managing the day to day and had a whole lot of like duties on my plate that I didn't love to do, but I sort of had to do because I was the only leader around that, that would be not fun. Um, But instead I get to do the things that, that I love that I'm pretty good at. And those things are honing the vision and, you know, getting my colleagues and clients excited about it um, is super fun. I, I still feel like Jade Smart's a, kind of a leadership laboratory where we're creating our own culture, we're creating our own everything, you know, processes, the way that we tell our story to clients, etc. So honing the vision, um, that's super fun. Uh, we, um, what else? See what other things. Um, recruiting and telling our brand story as an employment brand is one of my favorite things. I talked to this guy, uh, yes, uh, Friday, who is thinking about joining our firm. And he, he's just like, he's so talented and so good hearted, has done amazing things in his career. And listening to what he really wants to do in the future stages of his, his career, and then knowing that he can accomplish that here is exciting to me. It's like, it's not like handing out people's dream jobs to them. I mean, they earned it. Um, but it's the idea of, um, you know, through our own recruiting process and selection process, being able to talk with these really amazing people and then convince them to come join GH Smart. I'm, I'm, I have a chairman's Q&A at the tail end of all the hiring uh, of all of our consultants still. And I love that. If I didn't love it, I probably wouldn't do it. But I really, I really enjoy it. I really love um, like personally welcoming people into the, the firm and, and making sure they join. Um, business development, like so I've had the same email address for 25 years. And, you know, with the books and, and other other things, you know, um, CEOs, investors, et cetera, will contact me. And then, and then you know, sitting with um, someone who maybe is a new CEO of a huge resort and a hotel company worldwide, or sitting with the CEOs doing nanotechnology research, or sitting with um, someone who runs a children's hospital. I mean, it is so cool sitting with a new client with my colleagues. I try not to do all the talking or even hardly any of the talking, but um, meeting new leaders and then supporting my colleagues as we, you know, turn them into clients. I think it's a lot of fun. I still sort of thrill of the chase and it's, you know, and, and I know these clients are going to be happy with the work because we measure everything. We measure their satisfaction. So to be able to confidently hear them out, help them envision what they're trying to do to succeed um, and then offer what we can do to help them and then have them become a client and be really happy. Um, is uh, super fulfilling. So I think I think that's a lot of fun. And then I love working with Randy and my firm's leadership team. Randy is a super smart, like um, steady decision maker. He's everything I'm not around having like the breadth and depth to be a great um, leader and manager of this firm. It's just a pleasure kicking ideas around together. And then we're we're super decisive. So it's fun. You know, we'll, we have different committees and different governance and everything, but um, our ability to listen to good ideas, either from our colleagues or from our clients, um, and then take action, experiment, you know, kind of in the agile style of, of try it and uh, test and learn. That's a lot of fun. So that, I don't know what you call that, like innovation, I guess, is a lot of fun in a firm full of like good-hearted, talented people is, is a lot of fun. So yeah, it's, although my, my focus areas have ebbed and flowed and have been different things over the years, um, my enthusiasm level for what we're doing and the impact has always been high. And then um, if there's some part of my 
like personal entrepreneur work portfolio that I don't really like or that others can do better. Um, I just cleave it off and I give it to someone else who's better at it. Um, so that's sort of advice for how to keep the work <laughs> fresh and how to keep your own jo- job satisfaction high as it, you know, if you're on one of these like multi-decade journeys to build a great firm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And you'd mentioned uh, Randy Street a couple of times. How did you yeah. two meet? Um, so he, we met, let's see here. I personally didn't recruit him. One of my colleagues had known a Bain partner in Atlanta. Randy had, he, he'd gone to Harvard Business School and then Bain and was really successful at Bain. And then he was a, like number two or number three at a, that fastest growth company in Georgia at the time. Um, but he wanted to get back to professional services and uh, he he also just sort of loved the topic of leadership. Um, he was a Sunday school teacher, like really good, great speaker, and it was a good match. So we just, you know, we we got to him through a referral, and then hired him. And then it was about two years after he started at our firm. I think that's right. No, I'm not true. Five years after he started, he was one of the the youngest, most talented partners um, as a manager and a leader. And we were all like, Randy, can you please run the firm? Also, I was getting super burned out on crisis management in the 08, 09 recession. And I was kind of like, oh my gosh, would someone else help me You know, with the goal setting and the process design and process management and dashboards and just all the, the, the scaffolding you need to build and manage um, in order to grow the firm. And Randy is so much better at that. Uh, than I. So it's been a really special working relationship. We, we thought originally, you know, every, I don't know, three or four years, we'd rotate the managing partner role. Um, but he's so good that uh, we're all in agreement, you know, let's just like, let him keep running the firm because he's great at it. So I think he's like, not quite 50. So he's young enough. Uh, I, I'm hopeful and expect that he'll continue to run the firm for years to come. Wow. And, and during that, that segment you talked in the segment before that you talked a lot about leadership i mean what does leadership mean to you like how do you define that yeah it's funny i have the simplest definition of leadership i really like is helping a group of people figure out what it wants and then to formulate and execute a plan to get it so the element like at its core i think leadership's about helping improve people's lives and if you as a leader can help facilitate the process of figuring out, you know, what what are the priorities? What are the, what's the goal here? Like, what are we trying to do? And then hire and delegate to great people, and then you know, build relationships that are respectful and focused on results. Uh, then you know, you can create um, great results for for the for the people that you're serving. So I think I don't know leadership at its core if it's healthcare workers or military or government or for-profit or not-for-profit is, is basically about helping focus human capital to improve the quality of life of other people. And I'm a huge fan of <laughs> good leadership only counts if, if you're helping the customer base, however you uh, define customer, and if you're really making a positive impact in the lives of the employee base. So that's, uh, in fact, we're almost, we don't say this out loud. I'll, I'll share with you, Mark, because this top secret sort of values assumption, but um, we actually prioritize our colleagues over customers and shareholders. And it's controversial because this is this age old question of, in, you know, in good leadership, you know, who, who gets priority? And I think most companies 
are very shareholder focused and then they're sort of customer focused and then maybe a distant third is, oh yeah, the employees. Um, at GH Smart, right from the beginning, I, I, again, it was like one of the two equal reasons I started the company was I really wanted to have this be a great place for for people to build their careers. And so our, our opinion or the way that we actualize what great leadership is all about is uh, is providing just like an amazing work experience for people and then making a positive impact in the lives of uh, customers. And then if you do that really well, um, yeah, the shareholders will be happy over, over the long haul. But I think it's kind of fun and slightly controversial that we we do prioritize our colleagues over over all other priorities. And when you say that, what, like, what's that look like? Like, how does someone prioritize colleagues over shareholders yeah. and, and customers? Sure. So, um, hey, pandemic 2020 um, on our priority list, protecting jobs comes um, several clicks higher on the priority list than maximizing profits. And that's not easy to say or do. Lots of companies don't want to do that. They, they, you know, when push comes to shove or when challenges arise, they clearly go to um, kind of propping up short-term economic performance at the expense of people's um, jobs. But we, we just made a, we put a line in the sand and said, we're going to protect people's jobs. We're not laying anybody off, even though, you know, demand and profitability might be negatively impacted. So that's, that's an example of that. As far as like prioritizing people over, customers. Um, I had this one evil client once who was doing some, saying some hashtag me too stuff to one of my female uh, colleagues. And, you know, she called it out. She's like, you know, here's what this guy's saying. Um, and we were like, well, yeah, dump the client. And she's like, really? <laughs> like, this is like a profitable, you know, it was like a profitable, prestigious client. We're like, absolutely. Get like, like, get rid of that client, like, forget it. And so, Backing your people and being like, no, no, we're not going to work with bad clients um, is a fabulous statement of loyalty to your colleagues. We had, we had another, there's a, a client prospect we we're considering taking on who during the initial meeting revealed that that they write legal contracts that are really disadvantageous for the CEOs they, of the companies they own. And it was kind of like weird ethics stuff. And I am I am pretty sure many other consulting firms would still work with with that client. And I, I know that because I ref, after I told the guy that I wouldn't work with him because I didn't think he was honest, which was not a pleasant conversation, but I told him I, I, I didn't think that we'd be helpful in, given his methods and his way of um, how he invests in and builds businesses. You know, it's like inconsistent with our values and our methods. Um, but did he want me? <laughs> did he want me to find another firm to serve him? And I asked another firm, and I said, "This guy is dishonest, and he writes legal contracts that uh, CEOs later regret having signed um, in order to be, you know, in order to make more money. Uh, do you want to work with them?" And I, I, in two seconds, I found another consulting firm in our industry that was willing to work with. Them. But I didn't want to have my colleagues working with a dishonest client. So that's how, you know. That's how putting colleagues ahead of clients, that's what that looks like. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And and, in previous to you had mentioned that, you know, a big part of your job is sharing the brand story. I mean, what does what does that mean? Like, how do you define brand story and how do you go about doing it? You know, what I find is just that, you know, when I use those words brand story, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I'd love to hear your take on on uh, how you share, how you define it and how you actually go out and share that that story with the world. Sure. Well, I appreciate the question. And I think about it in two buckets. Uh, the brand story for 
employees for my colleagues is one message and a, and one brand and then the brand that that we the brand story we tell for clients is a second one in the brand story for colleagues uh, I, I do this kind of like um do you ever wonder type approach or I say like you know as a as you think about your work you know do you ever wonder um, how you can maximize the positive impact you're making you know to do work that that really matters and get paid for it and have a life outside of work like put those three circles together in a Venn diagram and name me you know one firm that allows you to do all three you know it's just like really meaningful fulfilling work to be able to make money and pay the bills and then to have a life outside of work and i this came this this moment of clarity hit when um, Randy Street, my colleague and I were teaching at Harvard Business School, the GH Smart case, where, you know, they, the kids read the like 12 page case and they talk about what we did wrong and what we could do better and, and that kind of thing. And this woman raised her hand and she, and she said, you know, I used to work for the Peace Corps and we were really big on, on mission and values and, and really the sort of, you know, why do we exist? And I would bet GH Smart hasn't even taken the time to write down why it exists or or what it believes in. And for that reason, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to work there. So she actually, to my face, during a class, hundred people in the room, professor had asked the question, like, would you know, would you, would everyone here work for GH Smart or not, and 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 why? And so she basically schooled us on, you know, hey, do you have you have you thought about and written down what your, you know, your firm's sort of credo is. And we hadn't, um, we had a, you know, I, I think a high vision for what, what, what we wanted to do. And we had to censor our values, but we actually hadn't taken the time to write out like a credo, like the Johnson and Johnson credo or, you know, the, and so we walked away from that experience going, hmm, all right, fine. You know, I think we need to now like clearly articulate why we exist and then make sure the values that we that we identify are, are the most important ones that, that make up our, the sort of DNA of our culture. So that, that brand story of, you know, impactful work, make money and have a life outside of work, um, sort of was born, it was an initial vision for why I wanted to join or start the company, but it, uh, it like we really improved that brand story after that um, kind of embarrassing class period, and that was like like ten years ago or something. And then what we did was we got our uh, entire team together for a year and worked on about a hundred drafts of who we are, why we existed, and and it ended up being that credo that whose first line that you read at the beginning here, which it starts, we exist to help leaders amplify their positive impact on the world. And I feel really good about this because it was a complete team effort to to really like articulate this credo. Yes, we have it in writing. Yes, it's different from other companies' credos or values. And and I think it's really helpful. So I, I'm thankful for that student calling us out and saying, hey, Peace Corps is pretty good at articulating its, you know, its why you know, uh, I wouldn't work for you guys because I bet you you haven't even written it down yet. Well, now we've written it down and we use it for hiring. We use it for performance management and coaching. Uh, we use it, you know, to as a as a benchmark for checking um, our culture, making sure we're living up to, you know, what the brand promise of that employment brand story is. So the employment brand story is like kind of you can have it all and you can't get that 
anywhere else. You can, you know, work on Wall Street, make money, but occasionally have existential questions of purpose uh, and a lousy lifestyle. You can work in the Peace Corps and have a great impact, but, you know, maybe not be able to be um, pumping your kids 529s <laughs> full of college savings money at, at, at as much or at a faster rate as you'd like. Um, and then there are just like a lot of jobs that are just sort of meh, you know, as far as the impact you have, um, as far as the um, wealth creation opportunities, and as far as your ability to really have flexibility and freedom and have a life and enjoy your life as, as you go. So I, I, I don't know, it's not, it seems like super obvious, like why wouldn't a firm like that exist? Um, but that's, we've been very conscious of wanting to make sure that brand story comes through loud and clear. And that's, those are, what's, <laughs> what I feel good about is behind closed doors and, you know, in anonymous environments like a glass door, um, our colleagues, you know, point, point out that brand story very uniformly and, and you know, candidly and, and with honesty, like, yeah, this is what we get uh, working here. Impact, money, um, the ability to have a life. So that, that brand story was like those three planks and, and it's, it's a story of, of having it all. And it's hard to pull off and there, it's harder to run a firm that gives people all three of those things than it is to run a firm that maybe takes one for three or two for three. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, it took you about a hundred drafts. Like what's hard about distilling all that down into a one page credo or into a vision statement or, you know, these different um, ways that we articulate our brand story? Like why a hundred drafts? What's hard about that? Yeah. You know, it's a feeling of two thoughts. One is you don't want it to sound generic like other companies because then it's not, it's not really inspiring and it's not, it's not that helpful. And two is the process of writing your credo, of writing the document that says why your firm exists. The process is super important. I, I don't want to say it's more important than the outcome, but you know, really getting input from everybody, you know, administrative assistants, finance people, IT people, consultants, senior people, junior people, that was uh, made clear to us because we, we uh, kind of benchmarked other great organizations that created a credo and how they do it. And they all told us, you got to get everybody's input. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like it came from everybody, you know, because it didn't. And so we were doing some pro bono work around that time with, um, with the U.S. Navy, with, their, with the Navy SEALs. And they are known for publicly, and I'm not going to share anything private, uh, but they're publicly known for having a really great credo. They call it their ethos. And you can look it up. And it's really compelling because it's it's very it's unique to their organization. So uh, we talked with a with uh, one Navy SEAL commander who had participated in the writing of their credo, you know, a, a while ago. And I asked him, "Well, how'd you do it?" And he said, "Well, the key part was really getting the voice from from everyone, you know, from all the different parts of of our organization." And then I said, "Well, how'd you do that?" And he said, "Well, we we had." Uh, three helicopters that we packed full of people who we had, you know, their peers had sort of nominated them to be on this team. And then we stuffed it full of red meat and beer and flew them over to San Clemente Island, which is off the coast of Coronado of um, uh, San Diego. And we told them they can't come back until they've written the document that says why we're special and, and why we exist. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. So we followed suit in in that. We got we just got just tons and tons and tons of input from people. And then, so not wanting it to be generic is one reason to do a hundred drafts. A second reason to do a hundred drafts is to, is to have it be like sort of creative and inspiring in a way that 
you know, lives on kind of like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, you know, we the people, like, you know, this, you realize like sort of how long this document's going to live and you really just want it to be inspiring and, and cool. And that takes drafts versus just saying stuff plainly, you know, try to say stuff that um, calls to a, a higher purpose and, and is, uh, the third thing is uh, specificity. So there are elements of our DNA that we think are really important and I wanted to make sure they all showed up in the credo and in the values. And so that took a number of drafts because we'd be like, oh yeah, wait a second. You know, something about, we don't really talk about sharing our knowledge with the world. Like isn't, you know, writing books and sharing our knowledge about leadership with the world part of something that's important to us. And then we go, oh yeah. And then, you know, we, we wrote in, you know, blah, blah, blah. While always protecting client confidentiality, we share our knowledge about leadership with the world, you know, stuff like that. So being complete and making sure the threads of DNA that make your organization uh, successful are, you know, show up in the credo is, is the other thing that uh, takes a lot of time. And that is Dr. Jeff Smart of GH Smart. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Tune in for the second part of this episode where he dives into the actual process of who and reveals his five-step process for hiring the right person every time. Oh, and our family has a credo which might as well be the wild story credo. And it goes something like this. Our home is a dream factory. There is no dream too big, too ridiculous, or too audacious. No one doesn't think you can achieve whatever you want. It's your dream, so live it. There are no shoulds, coulds, or have tos, just dreams and the courage to explore them. Ask, what if? Dreams are the stories we've yet to step into. It's great to have the right dreams. It's even okay to have the wrong dreams. But what we can't have is no dreams because it's our dreams that shape the world. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 